The following audio is from the Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had a ch- oh, sorry, I should have let you. That's my fault. Well, good morning. See, I just, I was so ready to just go, and then you guys were polite and answered me back, and I didn't know what to do with myself. That's my bad. Uh, My name's Evan. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I'm the creative lead here at the Grove Church, uh, which means that I picked out the song there, and so I whistle along with it like every week. It's a good time. It always cheers. It always cheers me up. Like after I listen to that, I'm like, I do love where I live. Thanks, Whistler. It's a good time. Um, Not Whistler, the city in Canada, which is also nice, but the whistler in the song. All right, well, I grew up in uh, the late 90s or the mid-90s to the early 2000s, let's say, was my childhood. It was a, it was a wild west of just, you know, a bunch of crazy things. Um, and perhaps the, the craziest thing, looking back on it, was 90s Christian children's television programs, which is a very niche thing. But I'm telling you, it's just, it's wild when you go back on it. Um, And as I was looking through, I was kind of getting this message prepared. I was thinking about the different things that I watched. Um, One of them, for instance, Bible Man, if any of you have ever heard of him, it's a good time. Uh, If you're watching online, let me know if you've ever heard of Bible Man before as well. It's just, it's a vibe. It's amazing. Um, I got to watch him take on the Fibbler, which is this guy who's real creepy. Also, I mean, there was the Gossip Queen. uh, There was the bald guy that I forgot his name, but he was spooky as well. It was a whole thing. Um, An eight-year-old me was like, oh yeah, Bible man has a lightsaber. He's so cool. And then you go back and you watch it today and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, Another one that I had was Salty with a P-S. So Salty, this thing, okay, so some people have heard of Salty, cool. Um, He was uh, Christianity's answer to Barney. And so I grew up... (laughs) Grew up with Salty. It's a whole thing. He's just a big Bible. I guess he's not a Bible. He's a songbook painted blue. Um, And while I was looking this up, I came across this nightmare that I had completely just forgotten about in my childhood. He's he's the Rat King or something. I don't know. Um, But he was a villain in Salty. And as soon as I saw that picture, I was immediately transported back to being four years old and screaming at my television and crying while my mom fast-forwarded the VHS tape. So yeah, I don't know who thought... I don't know who thought that guy was a good idea, but he he was not. Uh, And finally, perhaps probably the best aging of the early 90s Christian television series was VeggieTales. Oh, VeggieTales. VeggieTales is great. Um, If you've never seen it, it's it's anthropomorphic vegetables telling Bible stories. It's really weird when you say it like that, but it's... (laughs) it's a good time. It really is. It's just, you know, there's silly songs with Larry. There's the pirates who don't do anything. It's just, you know, it's a good, it's a good solid time. One of my favorites was Jonah. It was the first VeggieTales movie I remember going to see in theaters. And then for Christmas that year, I got the VHS tape. I watched it all the time. Um, It was awesome. And, but here's kind of why I'm bringing it up. Today, we're going to be talking about Jonah. And I think that the VeggieTales movie actually clouded the way that I looked at Jonah for years, and we'll find out why a little bit later. That's called a hook. So <laughs> now, for the, now for the next few minutes, you guys will be wondering, well, what, did, what, what was different about Jonah? Well, so we're going to talk about the historical context of Jonah. So I wanted to kind of give you a little bit of background on him. Uh, Jonah was a prophet. And if you've seen the movie, the song just came into your head, and you're welcome. If not, you have no idea what I'm talking about. 
Uh, but he was a prophet in northern Israel during a period of time when the kingdom was getting progressively more and more wealthy, and also at the same time, they were drifting farther and farther away from God. So the kings were, if you kind of opened up a history book, you're like, oh, these are some good kings of Israel. If you open up the Bible, you're like, these guys are a bunch of scumbags. And that's kind of just the weird divide that was happening. Because they were drifting farther and farther away from God, there was constant war because God wasn't really protecting them at all. And one of their main enemies was the Assyrian Empire, um, and this was with their great city of Nineveh. So the Assyrians were an exceptionally brutal people. Um, Later on, we would see like the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans, they would conquer Israel, they would rule over Israel, and they would, for the most part, allow them to keep their national identity, like the nation still existed, they were just a, a state under those empires. The Assyrians, what they would do is they would go in, they would kill as many people as they, as they felt like was necessary, and then they would uproot the rest of the population, and they would scatter them throughout the empire. And the idea was, in a few generations, you would lose all of your identity with your homeland, and eventually, it would be as if your nation never existed. So Assyria, they, they didn't want to just conquer Israel. They wanted to erase Israel from history. And that was their great rival at the time. And so God appears to Jonah and he tells Jonah that he needs to go to Nineveh and he needs to proclaim his judgment to the Ninevites, which would be an incredibly terrifying thing to do. And Jonah is afraid. And so he leaves. He gets on a ship in Joppa. He goes towards Tarshish, which is just, we don't know where that is, but it's somewhere apparently really far away. And we, and a lot of us grew up with the story, right? He's on this ship, and all of a sudden a great storm comes. The ship almost capsizes. They're trying to figure out what's happening. All of the sailors are crying out to their own gods, and nothing's changing. Uh, and finally, Jonah is revealed. He, he comes forward, and he says that he is the reason for this storm because he has disobeyed God. The sailors, you know, kudos to them. They're trying not to sacrifice him. They're trying to get to land as much as they can. Eventually, it becomes clear that that's not going to happen. And so they throw him overboard into the sea. The storm calms, and Jonah is probably thinking in that moment that this, this is the end, right? Because you don't survive being in the middle of the ocean. That's not a thing that you get to come back from. Uh, but then a great sea creature of some kind comes, and it swallows Jonah whole. And then while he's in the belly of this creature, he pens in Jonah chapter 2, which is a really beautiful poem. It's a poem of thanksgiving, and it's also a prayer of repentance where Jonah promises to do what God would have him do. He promises to go to Nineveh. So the creature spits Jonah out onto dry land, and he goes to Nineveh, and he proclaims God's judgment. And God's judgment is that in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. So Jonah's going around into this city of people who hate him, and he's proclaiming that, hey, listen, by the way, you're all going to die soon. It sucks, but it is what it is. Um, but then something, something incredible happens. Uh, the people of Nineveh actually repent. They listen. And what, what I thought was so interesting in, in reading this is God's message was not, you are going to be destroyed unless you do this, in which case I will give you mercy. The message was full on, you're going to be destroyed, and that was the end of it. And yet, the Ninevites, kind of hoping against hope, repent. They cry out to God for forgiveness. The king declares a day of fasting and mourning. They're all in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah finds himself in the middle of, of possibly the greatest prophetic victory ever recorded in the Bible. And there's a lot, 
right? Like there's so many moments we can think of of the prophets where they're just declaring God's truth and these miracles happen. And yet here we are, Jonah is in the middle of a city of people who hate God, who hate Israel. He proclaims God's truth and the entire city repents and cries out to him. So that's, that's an incredible moment. I think so often we, we've heard stories so many times we don't take the time to just pause and kind of reflect on how truly incredible that would have been to see. And it makes it a little bit even more surprising that this is Jonah's reaction. In Jonah chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live." See, Jonah finds himself angry at the mercy of God. And the reason I was talking about VeggieTales and, and just the way that I heard the story growing up, I always heard the story that Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and he was afraid for his life. And it would be a terrifying thing to do. Like it would be almost the equivalent of like going to Kabul today and preaching to the Taliban, like open in the streets. Like you that would be an incredibly brave thing to actually do. And so Jonah flees, right? And in the VeggieTales movie, he's afraid the fish are going to slap him. But, you know, it's just a whole thing. But then when you read that verse, you realize Jonah was never actually afraid for his life. He says, that is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah wasn't afraid that he was going to lose his life. He was afraid that the Ninevites would be spared. He, he hated the Assyrians. He hated the Ninevites so much that it, it, it scared him that God would show them mercy, and he wanted no part of it. And it's interesting to me because so often in Scripture, when we see people fail, and in our lives when we fail, it's because we don't fully understand or fully believe the character of God. Right, like Moses is afraid when God tells him to go to Pharaoh, and he's afraid because he doesn't truly believe that God is going to be with him. Barak is afraid and needs Deborah because he doesn't truly believe that God is going to be with him. They have a, a lack of understanding of who God is. Jonah might be the only biblical character who fails because he has an accurate understanding of who God is, because he understands that God is merciful and abounding in love. And it's not, it's not that long ago that Jonah was in the belly of, of the whale, of the fish, and he pens this poem offering thanks to God. And the very last line of that poem is, salvation belongs to Yahweh, or salvation belongs to the Lord. And, and Jonah says that, and he thanks God that salvation belongs to him and that he will save who he wills and yet not that long later, he gets angry at God for saving those who he will. He loves that God's salvation was for him, and he hates that it was for those people. And the, the, the more 
I read about Jonah and the more I, I, I read about how he was willing to receive that gift from God, but he wasn't willing to pass it on to others. The, the more I contrast him with another famous character from, from Christian history, um, and that's St. Patrick. And a, f- a few years ago, I kind of just got on this kick where I started reading a lot about him just because it, it, it was interesting to me. Um, it kind of bums me out that St. Patrick's Day today is kind of this vague celebration of, of Irish. Um, and at its worst, it's like a day of drunken debauchery. Um, but like St. Saint Patrick is actually like a really, he's an amazing person. And I think sometimes it's, it happens so long ago, we don't truly think about what he walked through. But he, he's a young man growing up in Britain, and he's kidnapped by Irish raiders. They come to his town, they raid, and they take him back to Ireland, and they sell him into slavery. And so for all he can expect, he is going to be a slave in a foreign land for the rest of his life. Yet one day he escapes, he makes it onto a boat, he gets back to Britain and he becomes a priest. And then he feels so clearly the call of God on his life to go back and to preach the gospel to the very same people who beat him, who abused him, who enslaved him. It's, it's just, a, it's a powerful story. And, and, we, and we see this, this, this idea that Patrick loved the Irish so well that most people today forget that he's not Irish. Like we think of him as being Irish, but he's actually British. He's become so much a part of that culture and heritage. Every Christian in Ireland owes in some way or another a debt of gratitude to him, all because God called him to love people who hated him, and he, and he obeyed. And what, what's interesting, when I was reading through, there, there's actually a few surviving works that we have of what he wrote. And in his confession, he writes down the reason why he went back to Ireland, and he says this, I cannot keep silent, nor would it be proper So many favors and graces has the Lord deigned to bestow on me in the land of my captivity. For after chastisement from God and recognizing him, our way to repay him is to exalt him and confess his wonders before every nation under heaven. See, see Patrick was confronted with his own sin and he was confronted with with the radical forgiveness of God, and his life was forever changed. And, and you, you read it all throughout, all throughout his writings. One of the first things that struck me is he always describes himself. He goes, I, Patrick, the, the greatest sinner. I, Patrick, the least among the brethren. I, Patrick, a poor preacher. Like he, The way he describes himself, it is clear that he is always aware of just how sinful and broken he was and just how much God had forgiven him. And yet he, he believed in that forgiveness so much that he couldn't do anything else other than tell people about Jesus. And for, for me, it's just so convicting, right? Because I can, I can spout off the gospel, right? I can say, you know, Jesus Christ is, is God in the flesh and he lived the perfect sinless life that I could never live, that he died the death that I deserve to die and that because of his life and death and resurrection, I can now have relationship with him and that is open to everyone. Like I can say that, but do I actually, you know, in my heart, believe it? Do, do I let that truth change my life the way that Patrick did? 
Or, or, or am I more like Jonah where I can say those things, uh, but when it comes time to actually practice them, I just kind of tuck it away? Where when, when Jonah declares that salvation belongs to God, that's something he says, but it's not something that he actually believes and walks through. It's, just, it's so interesting to me that both men were called to go preach to people they, that hated them. And no one, would have, no one blamed Jonah for hating the Assyrians, and no one would have blamed Patrick if he spent the rest of his life hating the Irish. And yet one man failed and one man succeeded. And I think for, for us today, for, for most of us, we're not called to love people who hate us. Um, some of us are. Maybe we do have those people in our lives. But I, I would say most of the people in our lives that God would call us to love, which is everyone, by the way, but most of the people in our lives are not people who hate us, people who despise us. They're people that we disagree with. And I think... One of, the, one of the most tragic things that we can do as Christians is put anything above the gospel. I, I, I can't remember where, um, where I heard this. If it might have been on the radio. It might have been actually someone asking me about it. I'm not sure, but I just remember how convicting it was the first time. Um, but someone asked, if someone met you, would they know your politics or your faith first? And, and, and for a long time, if you met me, you would know right away where I stood on certain political issues, and then maybe if you knew me long enough, you would know where, where, that I was a Christian. In that moment, I heard the question, and it was so convicting for me, because how, how backwards is that? How, how, how backwards is it? that I should let my beliefs about how the government should be run or which politicians I do and don't agree with, all these different things, that I should let that define my life and not the fact that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he loves me. And I think one, one of the things that we have a tendency to do is we kind of lock ourselves into, into echo chambers. And it's just a human thing, right? Like it's, not, it's, not, it's uncomfortable to be friends with people we disagree with. And so we want to spout off what we believe, and we want to be surrounded by people who are just going to spout it right back to us, right? And I always joke, it's, it's one of like my biggest pet peeves in social media is I feel like every single day I see some post that's like, you know, if you don't agree with me on X, then, you know, unfriend me right now. Um, which if I listened, I would have like three people that I follow <laughs> on social like it's such It's such a ridiculous thing to say. Um, but the, the tragic underlying point of that is like, hey, if, if person who's in my life, friend, family member, whatever it is, I just want you to know that if we don't agree on this particular issue, I want you out of my life forever. And maybe that's not the way that we think about it when we post things like that, but that's, that's the reality, right? That is what is being said right there is that this issue, the way that we line up, line up on it is more important to me than our relationship. And, and the more we lock ourselves in those echo chambers, the more we begin to see those people, the people that we disagree with, we see them less and less as people, and we see them more, than, we see them more and more as evil. We see them more and more as wicked. And, and we become like Jonah, right? It doesn't start off as a hatred, but eventually we just rile ourselves up and we're thinking, oh my gosh, they are just the worst thing for this country. They just want to bring the whole thing down, like whatever it is. 
and eventually, like Jonah and the Ninevites, and he's rooting for their destruction. Like, he goes up on the hill after the story, and he's waiting for fire to fall down. Like, he, he is literally grabbing popcorn so that he can watch the death of a million people. But we do that too, right? I mean, maybe it's not to that extreme, but we'll look at those people that we disagree with and bad things happen in their life. And instead of our hearts going out for them, instead of feeling sorrow for tragedy, we just think to ourselves like, ah, they got what was coming. Like we, we revel in it. And one, one, of the, one of the relationships in my life that I cherish most is my, is my childhood best friend. And we've been, I mean, I'm, I'm 29, and so we've probably been friends for like 27 years. Like, it's been a really long time. I do not remember not being friends. Um, and and as, as life has gone on, the, the way that we view politics and the way that we view a lot of worldview issues has, has diverged greatly. Like, we're on opposite ends of a lot of things. And, and yet, one of the things that I love about this relationship is every time we hang out, every time we grab lunch, every time we're together, we can talk about all the taboo subjects of life. We can talk about politics. We can talk about faith. We can talk about areas where we disagree. Um, and it has never once affected our relationship. And, and the reason for that is because I know that he loves me, and he knows that I love him. And we, we grew up together. We built Lego sets, and we broke them on accident, and we had to walk through all that conflict. <laughs> we, climbed to the, uh, we climbed to the top of his tree fort, and we fought off the orcs at Helm's Deep, and we were heroes. Um, and we were also, as, as life went on and we got older, we were there for each other during really dark times. We were, we were able to call each other. We were able to be there. We were able to cry with each other. And, and so why would we let something as silly as political and worldview disagreements throw away decades of friendship. And I, I, I love and I cherish that friendship for exactly that reason, that we can disagree, but because of the relationship and the history that we have, we know that we will always be friends. And see, when, when you disagree with someone that you love, you, you don't have the option of viewing them as the enemy. You, you don't have the ability to see them as evil or wicked, but you see them for what they actually are. You see them as a person created in the image of God, a person who needs Jesus' love and grace every bit as much as you do. They are an immortal soul living in a fallen world, and we just happen to disagree about certain issues. See how much harder it is to just box people out and, and view them as evil or wicked or other when you truly take the time um, to love people you disagree with. And we, we had a moment, um, my wife and I, we got to go on kind of our dream vacation a few months ago, and so we, we were sitting in, in London in a place called um, Trafalgar Square, which is just kind of a big, wide-open um, really busy area, so you can see thousands of people. And we were um, sitting at a museum. We were waiting for a play to start. We had gotten there a little bit early on accident, and so we're just kind of people watching. And there's a musician in the corner. Uh, there's a girl doing skateboard tricks over on the right. There's kids drawing in chalk. There's couples taking pictures. There's an Instagram model doing the duck face thing. Like, it's a whole, you get, <laughs> dude, everywhere. It was nuts. But you got this kind of just wide breath of humanity. And, and I thought, occurred to me there, um, and it, this is going to sound really absurd, um, and Ashley told me how absurd it sounds, um, and maybe this just makes me sound like a sociopath, I don't know, um, but it just, it just occurred to me there how every single one of those thousands of people I was looking at was just as much a person as, as I am. 
I know that's, again, it's, it's absurd because of course that's true. Of course everyone is a person. But how, how often in our lives do we live as if we are the main character, everyone else is a side character, and they only matter insofar as they affect our lives? How often do we take the time to see people? Like I saw that girl doing her skateboard trick, and she, she attempted the same thing probably 50 times and failed most of the time, um, but instead of just being like, oh yeah, there's someone doing skateboard tricks over there, I started, I started to wonder, um, well, does she have like a bunch of friends who skateboard? Does she look up? Does she admire skateboarders? Is this something like she saw on YouTube and it's really important for her? She wants to nail? Does she aspire to do professional skateboard? Like you start to just realize that people are people. Um, when we're driving around town and we make awkward eye contact with someone in the car and we, our, our eyes flip back to the front of the windshield because, oh, that's super awkward. Now they're going to think I'm a weirdo. Um, but they're driving somewhere else too, right? Like I'm going to work and I, and I love my job and you know, I have these whole set of things I'm going to. Are they going to work? Are they going home? Are they going? You, you start to kind of wonder what people are up to and, and you realize that every single person that we interact with every day, every single person that we see, every single person has hopes and dreams and they have areas where they're struggling spiritually. They have tragedies that they've walked through who have made them who they are. They have aspirations and triumphs and things that are just inspiring about their lives and, and every single one of them needs Jesus and, and yet so often we, we don't see people the way that they actually are. And, and, and there's, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that has always stuck with me on this, and it's from his book, The Weight of Glory, which, which is fantastic. And he says, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. How, how often, when we disagree with people, when we joke with people, when we interact with people, do we view them as immortal souls just like us? And the, the whole idea of this message, right, we're in the middle of love where you live, and this week is about building bridges with people we disagree with, because how can we love where we live if we hate half the people who live here? Like, how, how and, and again, this isn't saying you have to agree about everything. This isn't saying that we all need to just set aside differences. There's things that we can talk about. There's ways that we can disagree. Um, but do we love people? Do our hearts ache for the people in our cities who need Jesus, or do we just view them as the others? And I, I wanted to end today just with three just kind of practical, practical tips that occurred to me while I was writing. Um, they're all a little bit different, but the first one would just be this. Um, think before you post. Um, and I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've typed something out and I've hit enter, and then 30 seconds later, I'm like, that wasn't a re good reflection of Christ, and I have to delete it. It happens more times than I would care to admit. But we live in such an interesting world where there's a whole subset of people that we interact with, and the only way that we interact with them is over social media. Like, I grew up in Las Vegas. I have a whole bunch of friends where the only way that I see them and the only way that they see me is on social media. I'm probably never going to see any of them again in my life with, with those people, 
what do they think of me? Like if they were struggling with something, would they feel comfortable opening up to me or would they feel like I would judge them? When, when they interact with me on social media, do they see the light of Christ shining through or, or do they see me just being angry about whatever it is that's kind of the, the news of the day? The, se- the second point would be this. Expose yourself to ideas that you disagree with. And in my role where I, g- I get to do some teaching, I actually think it's, it's really important for me to interact with the ideas of really prominent atheists. And it's not because, you know, I'm going to meet Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or whoever it is, um, but I, I want to understand the way their minds are working. I want to understand how they got there because while I'm, I'm never going to meet those guys, um, I am going to meet people almost every day who hate God and hate the church. And if I've never expose myself to those ideas, if I've never taken the time to listen to what they have to say, I'm going to have a completely different idea of who they actually are. And the same thing goes with politics, anything we disagree on. Um, Most of the time, you're not going to change your mind, which is fine. I've had it happen a few times where I've been pretty set in something, and then I'm, you know, listen to the other side, the other, other, another viewpoint, and then kind of realize, oh, you know what, I actually agree with them more. But what it does do is it allows you to see where people are coming from. It allows you to see them as humans. It allows you to see the logic of how they're working towards their goals. And it's it's much harder to see people as evil and wicked if you actually take the time to listen to what they have to say and listen to how they arrived at those ideas. Um, And finally, and this is going to be the hardest one. It takes the most concentration. um, But strive to see people the way that Jesus does. And I'm not, I'm not on a pedestal saying, like, I do this all the time and you guys need to be like me. Like, this is a daily struggle where I, I get frustrated, I get upset, um, and then I have to remind myself, okay, am I looking at people the way through my own eyes or am I looking at them through Jesus' eyes? Like, when I, when I look at someone who hates God and hates the church, am I seeing them as an enemy or am I seeing them as a prodigal who's ready to come home? When, it, when I see someone who's sinned against me and I'm angry with them, do, do I see that or do I see an opportunity for repentance and, and reconciliation like Jesus would? Do I, do I look out at people I disagree with and do I see them as enemies or do I see them as people who desperately need the grace of Jesus that I've received? And see, the, the more that we're able to look at our city, the more that we're able to look at people and see them through Jesus' eyes, the more we are able to take the gift of grace that God has given us and actually pass it along. We, the way that we can, we don't have to fail like Jonah where we receive a gift from God and we're unwilling to see God give it to other people. We can instead be saved, we can be forgiven, we can be loved, and we can desperately want other people to see that grace and love and forgiveness as well. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for your grace, for your salvation. And I pray that it would never be something that we take for granted. I pray that you would help us to love well. I pray that you would help us to love others the way that you have loved us. I pray that the way that we interact with others would be an inspiration and show them the love of Christ. And I pray that we would be able to build bridges with those that we disagree with. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.